0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: You know what, Luke, what also occurred to me sometime between last night and this morning. Again, I fell asleep almost immediately upon completion of the game last night, so it didn't hit me immediately last night, but maybe when I was getting ready for work or whatever it was this morning, it dawned on me that this would now be, if if they were ever so inclined to do so, this would be the perfect inoffensive, strategic time for the Cleveland Indians management to decide they're going to change the name of the team. If they've ever thought that this is going to be, this is going to be something that's on the agenda, that they don't want to deal with the protesters, if they feel that the name may in modern, you know, it wasn't, you can honestly go back and say, no, once upon a time, it wasn't considered racist, but maybe now people are really upset by it. And so we're going to change it. This to me would seem to be the moment when the ownership of that franchise could say, look, we can't win with this name. We just lost to a team that has a 108-year drought. This, we are going to change our luck. You could use this loss, honestly, as the springboard to something to say, we need to change our luck, and what we're going to do to change our luck is we're going to change our name. And this would be, to me, if you were ever going to do this, this is the moment when you can do it and not look like, and I, I was on with Scott Thompson the other day. We were talking about this. This would be the moment when you don't have to look like you're caving in. Because I think the owners of a lot of these teams that have native names, it's not that they are afraid of changing it. There's massive money to be made in changing a team name and a logo. Sure, you sell all kinds of new merch. You go And, and with Cleveland, you've got an easy one because Cleveland has history. And before the Indians, it was the spiders. You could say, we're sticking with history. We're going right back. We're going to go back to when we were the Cleveland spiders. And think of the possibilities for the merchandise and everything you could do on that. You would sell hundreds of millions of dollars. I just believe that for a lot of these organizations, they don't want to be seen as cowering to the protesters. They don't want to seem, these are competitive people. They don't want to lose. And so they dig in their heels and they say, no, if you tell me that I have to change my name, I'm not going to change my name. I am not going to give in to you. I'm not going to count out to you because you've told me that I'm doing something wrong. But here's Cleveland's opportunity. We just lost in the World Series. We have this streak that's now becoming, that's now the second highest losing streak, drought, non-winning, non-championship streak in all of major pro sports in North America. Time for us to change our fortunes, and we're going to do that by switching the name. This, to me, would be perfect, and it would get them out of all the difficulty with fans and protest groups and everyone else, and you could do it on your own terms and spin it to a positive, and everybody, everybody goes away from this happy.
0: You know, it's funny. I, I actually read an article that was suggesting exactly that uh, this morning. But the interesting thing that was that was brought up in there was that Cleveland wore the same uniform for all 15 games this postseason, which is odd in and of itself. But the way it relates to this discussion is that it is one of their alternate uniforms, and it is one that prominently features Chief Wahoo, the logo that everybody has. Suggesting they were the rubbing problem. it in the faces of the I protesters? I wouldn't say rubbing, rubbing it in the face. <sighs> Maybe for game one against Boston, maybe that's why they wore it and then they won and you just superstition in baseball, you keep rolling with the with the jersey you won in. But it's it's certainly an odd decision to wear that specific uniform. It's not like it was their road uniform or their home uniform and they wore it for all of the games. It's This is one of their alternate uniforms that features their racist caricature logo on the cap and on the arms and they wore it for all of the games it's not like more than that they have those signs at the games that everybody saw if you watched a game in Cleveland where it's a, a chief wahoo flexing and the fans can write whatever they want in there again prominent display of that logo when you see pictures from from media that are visiting the park and you hear we're phasing out chief wahoo and then they send you they they show pictures of the team store where there are entire walls dedicated to merchandise just of that logo it's it w- you're right it would be the perfect situation to I don't think they will because it seems like they are going the complete opposite direction. Which, I, I think the name change would be a good move. I think the logo change is a necessary move.
1: I'm not going to get well. I'm not going to get into the whole uh, whether it's the right thing or not. Everyone has their opinion, and that's you know. And Luke, you just expressed a really you know a very popular opinion and a good one. And I, I too have discomfort with the logo. The name, I'll be honest with you, I'm 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 mixed on the name, only because I'll tell you why. No team, well, there's a variety of reasons, but no team picks a name because they want the name to be foolish or look weak or look silly. They've picked the name because they want to be winning and powerful and strong, and you want to project a brand that shows that that team name is a winning outfit. So. It's not like you're mocking Indians when you use that name. No. And and so the logo however is something different. The logo is a caricature. The logo is something that is supposed to be over the top and stereotypical.
0: And and I mean with the logo, come on, the face is red. Like it, you really don't have to go much further than that. That it's we talk about how bad the Washington Redskins team name is because that that's a slur. And and you look at Cleveland's logo, and the Chief Wahoo's face is bright red. Like that, that really to me is the is the be all uh, and got, end all
1: with the logo. I've got no issue with with what you're suggesting and what we're suggesting. I think the you know the logo is problematic, but again, the name. I can hear both sides of the argument. And I don't have as much of an offense. I don't I don't have the feeling of offense with the name that I do with the logo. Although, as I say, I can absolutely, it's one of those ones where you say, listen, I don't want to be the person who is just kowtowing to political correctness at every turn, but I can also see how somebody might be offended by this. So well, we can have that discussion, but here is your moment. Here mm-hmm. is your moment. You can now, as I said a moment ago, you can take this moment of this loss and turn this off season into the most lucrative offseason in Cleveland baseball history because you will have everybody buying the new stuff if you position it right. If you position it that it's time for us to change our fortunes because what we're doing, we just can't get over the hump. Remember, they played in 19, no, what year? 2003, 2002, when the Indians played against the Florida Miami. 97. Was it 97? Yeah. All right, the Miami Marlins. <laughs> and could have won that World Series. And, and lost a mistake, Game seven. An error by Tony Fernandez in Game 7. The, the beloved Blue Jay, Tony Fernandez, was playing second base for Cleveland, and that opened the gates. They can position this that it is time for us to change this. It's time for us, not because, and they can tell everybody they want, it's not because we are backing down, it's because we want to win a championship and we just need to change our luck. And with it would bring... Tens of hundreds of millions of dollars in new sales. I see for them, truly, I see no downside. I see no downside whatsoever. And while you agree or disagree, if the owners still love the Indians name in these uniforms, you do what every other franchise does. And once a year or once every couple of years, you pull it out of mothballs and you throw it onto the players in the field and you sell a million of the throwback jerseys. What I will say
0: about the about the team name, which you you said the the fact that you don't go out there getting a team name that is weak, you want you want to project strength, is I think that's part of part of an issue with with the team names that we have, not just the Redskins, not just the Indians, but also the Braves and even to some extent the Blackhawks, is that. But it, it, that method of thinking means that the the native is some something to be feared, and that's that's when those names come from. That's that's the era that those names come from is when well, is no. when the well, but when no. the native was a like when there were when it was cowboys and Indians. That's the best way to put it, it. And the good guys were the cowboys, and so it's it's not something that's very overt, but
1: it's sort of a are the Maple Leafs are Maple Leafs <laughs> to be feared? Well, are, that's, are, no, that's are clearly the, are the fighting Irish to be feared. No, that's the one people always bring up. Well, uh, in the
0: discussion, but uh, to are be the honest, Vikings, how about
1: the Vikings? Are the Vikings to be feared? All the people from Scandinavia who are no, blonde no. I, and, I, I'm not so, saying
0: that necessarily. It's a, it's a huge issue. I'm just saying that's an that's an underlying thing from when they were created, and I think that's what some people may have an issue with is that that's what the names represent a time when uh, when most natives were a caricature from from old spaghetti
1: westerns. Do people who work in breweries, are they to be feared? Because the Milwaukee Brewers, how about the Packers, the people who pack stuff at the... I mean, you've I watched think, the Brewers in the last well, few years, be, right? F- There's yeah. nothing
0: to be feared about that team.
1: I'm, my, the point just is, you know, the, the discussion about the name, It here's your moment. If you're the Cleveland franchise, here's your moment. There is a door that is now cracked open for you to walk through and be not only the hero, but a deeply enriched hero. You really are. You will do nothing but make money. And you know what? There may be a few people that get upset with you. But if you position it that it's time to change our fortunes more than anything, I think people would jump on this. And plus, as I said, if you were to go back to your history, come on, what could you do as far as logos and team uniforms and merchandise and stuff with the spiders? That's a cool name that with a graphic artist who can get his hands on that right now, you could have some cool, cool stuff. to think about. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM
2: 900 CHML.
1: Hamilton's hospitals overwhelmed with patients. Let me read you the first two paragraphs of the story. A barrage of patients to Hamilton's hospitals is overwhelming emergency departments, leaving too few ambulances on the road and overcrowding hospital wards. St. Joseph's Healthcare has been operating at 134% capacity for three months. Uh, the, the writer of that, the reporter who put that story together, is Joanna Frikatich from The Spectator. She joins me now. Joanna, thanks for doing this. Let me get you. There we go. Joanna, thanks for doing this.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, okay, so just to recap what you just said there, we are, hospitals have too many people in them. There's not enough room for them, and there are not enough ambulances at times on the streets. Uh, I'm not an expert, but that doesn't sound good.
3: Ha, ha, ha. Uh, no, uh, no, it's definitely uh, not ideal. The hospitals uh, are putting things in place to try and relieve that situation. So uh, they have the St. Joseph's and Hamilton Health Sciences, between the two of them, uh, have opened uh, dozens of uh, beds. These are unfunded beds uh, to try and relieve uh, some of that situation. Uh, there was a time in October where St. Joseph's went on what is called a, a crisis uh, mode, where they were their patients were bumped to the top of... Of long-term care lists and home care lists to try and get those patients um, out of the hospitals. Um, Hamilton Health Sciences has, uh, you know, uh, implemented parts of what uh, it calls a surge plan, so that involves, you know, having command centers at the hospital to try and deal with that. So they are trying uh, to deal with the situation, but yes, it's far from ideal.
1: I want to deal with a lot of the things you just touched on, because you said a l- you had a lot of meat in that bone right there, but, I- but before we get there, what what has happened? Because your story says there's something like a 20% increase in the number of people who are coming in, for example, to emergencies or whatever. I can't believe that suddenly out of the blue, out of the ether, the city of Hamilton is just suddenly producing 20% more extravagantly sick people who need immediate treatment. So what, what's the underneath, what's broiling underneath the surface here that's causing this to happen?
3: Well, at the moment, the reason for the surge uh, is unknown. Hamilton Health Sciences suggested maybe it's an early start to the flu season, although the public health department doesn't think that's the case. Uh, Unions um, say that, you know, the situation that we find ourselves in um, is a predictable outcome of uh, years of frozen hospital budgets uh, at the, uh, you know, by the province and that as the population ages and you see more patients that we will see uh, more things like this. Um, but what is known is that uh, Hamilton's hospitals run at uh, about 100% capacity pretty much all the time. So it means that there is very little wiggle room in the system. So when you have a surge, there isn't a lot of uh, capacity to absorb that surge. So, you know, that's why you end up seeing, you know, um, overcrowded wards and backlogs in the emergency departments and delays to services.
1: Is there anything in your mind, is there anything to the union's comments? Because I know CUPE uh, blamed the government very clearly. They put out a statement about this today um, saying, yeah, this is this is entirely because of funding cuts and not spending the money. Is that a legitimate concern that there is not the money there to handle this?
3: Well, I think there's probably a lot of factors at play here, you know, some of them demographic, you know, it it, it could be something that's going around uh, the city right now. But one thing that that the union uh, is right is that uh, hospitals did uh, spend, uh, you know, many years uh, with, a, with frozen budgets, and even this year, this is the first year in um, many years that they have received an increase, but that increase is nowhere near inflation. So... While the hospital's budgets have been frozen, their costs have continued to go up, and some of those costs they have no control over, such as uh, uh, salaries, uh, which are bargained provincially. So it, it has meant that uh, Hamilton's hospitals have had to make you know, tens of millions of cutbacks, HHS uh, cuts back about 25 million every year. Uh, you know, has to find those cuts somewhere in the system. So when you've been doing that for multiple years, you can't help but think that eventually that does have some sort of effect.
1: It, it absolutely does. And I'm just I'm wondering when you start talking about this money and the amount of money, because you know it's easy to say, you know, we, you and I can throw around oh 25 million a year, and it's just a number. 25 million dollars is an awful lot of money. I don't care what you're doing. That's a lot of money.
3: Uh, yes it is and uh you know the the plans at St. Joe's they're having to um uh, at St. Joe's, they're having to uh, eliminate, you know, many jobs. This year, they're at the point of eliminating jobs. Many programs are being moved out to the community. Programs that used to be in hospitals um, are being moved out to the community to try and uh, come up with new ways of uh, providing health care to try and deal with that reality that, you know, they have uh, they have to do more with less.
1: So, I mean, just uh, uh, for context, I guess, and and my context is going to be poor here. I understand that. But if if a doctor, if a decent, a good doctor in town is making a quarter million dollars a year, is making $250,000 a year, you're $25 million, if my math is right. That's 100 doctors we would have to cut. Now, I know we're not just cutting doctors. There's nurses and administrators and beds and all these other things. But it gives some kind of sense of how significant one year's cuts would be. And, Joanne, it makes me wonder, do we get to the point, I mean – Nobody wants to endlessly just pour money. We don't want our taxes to be going up 10 and 12 and 15% a year because we can't afford that. We know that. But do we then get to a point where we have to say, you know, we can't afford maybe everything that we've ever provided before for everyone. We do have to make some choices here, and they're not ever going to be good or easy choices, but we just can't do what we've done.
3: Well, I think what's more important is that um, we have to look at different ways of providing the care, which the government has started to do but it's just not all in place uh, yet and you know it, it really needs to get there and it really if you want to get down to it the issue isn't in the emergency departments the issue is blocked beds on the wards of the hospital so what that means is there are patients that are ready to be discharged uh, from the hospital but the hospital uh, can't uh, let the you know they can't leave the hospital because they are waiting for other types of care they might be waiting for a long-term care bed they might be waiting for home care they might be waiting for other treatment. And this causes major problems in the hospital. They always have these patients there. Um, Hamilton's hospitals try to keep that at 12% of their beds. And when they run into trouble, is um, right now. uh, right now, St. Joseph, they're at um, over 20% of their beds taken out by people who are ready to be discharged from hospital. Um, Now, you can imagine what that does. That equates to 65 of their beds. So if they had those 65 beds, you wouldn't... um, see some of the issues that they're having. At Hamilton Health Sciences, that rate is 15% of their beds, and at times in October it went to as high as 18%. So some of the issues is, you know, having those um, other types of treatment in place so that when people are ready to be discharged from hospital, hospitals can actually discharge them. So some of it is about changing our system to have those other um, treatments and services in place.
1: Well, and it certainly then sounds, based on your description of it, and it's a great explanation. But th- this is a trickle-down problem to the hospital. The hospital is not the top of the mountain; they're the ones. It's all these other places. If you can't send someone off to the palliative care, to the uh, or wherever you, they have to go, or to some other treatment center, and they're stuck just taking up a bed, that's Absolutely. a that's a huge problem. And it's not the hospital's problem. Then. I mean, the hospital ultimately deals with the problem, but it's not they're not the ones causing the problem.
3: Absolutely, um, it, it is uh, an issue that has. Um, been uh, around for uh, many years. And if you can imagine, normal for them is, you know, about 12%. So you can see uh, that this is a big problem. And uh, the head of Hamilton Health Sciences, you know, talked uh, in the story about how. Um, it all trickles down to the emergency department. So the emergency department is sort of where you see the effects of those blocked beds. It all ends up uh, sort of with a block in in, a, in the emergency department. That's where, you know, the bottleneck uh, is.
1: This is, I'm putting you on the spot here, I know that. But let me throw out a question, because this is something that has been talked about before, not just by me, but I've I've mentioned it before and other people. What do you think would happen within our health system if we were to put in a very small but some kind of service fee to go to emergency because, and the reason I say this is not to make people all of a sudden need it by having an aneurysm because they heard me say this. The idea being there are people, and we all know, and when I had to take my child to emergency a while ago, one of the people was saying that there were people here who were here every day. And if you, if, you know, if, if you said, okay, it's, you know what, depending on your income, it's five bucks to come. If it's something, maybe discourage some people from coming. Do you think that would actually make any difference or do you think that it's such a small percentage that, you know what, and, and the other thing is we don't really want to chase people away if they're sick?
3: Well, I think that's the biggest concern is that, you know, um, when I talked to Dr. Chris Manage for this story, his bottom line is that if you feel you need to go to an emergency department, then he wants you to go there. Okay. Um, because, you know, the last thing they want is someone who really does need emergency care to hold off because they think it's too busy or, you know, they um, think that they're being a pain. If you believe you need that care, then absolutely um you should uh... you should go um, also uh... you know really it is a small percentage that uh, of patients who uh, should not be there and sometimes it might even not be their fault we have some issues um, with primary care you know we have shortages of family doctors so for some people, you know, the difficulty for them is, is maybe they have few places to go. But it is good to remind people that we do have two urgent care centers in Hamilton. There's one uh, in the West End and there's one in the East End. Those are an excellent alternative to the emergency department. There is um, walk-in clinics. And uh, of course, uh, you can always uh, try to get in to see your family doctor, you know, those are if you have... Um, the type of illness where you feel that it can wait and maybe doesn't need an emergency room right now. The other thing that people can do uh, to help this situation is to get your flu shot. Um, you know, I know it's something that Dr. Chris Manish talked to me about when I was writing this story is that, you know, they're seeing this and we're not actually at the peak of flu season yet. This is not... Um, you know, most of these stats are from um, October and October is not traditionally the busiest time for hospitals. So if people get their flu shot, that could help take some of the load off when they do get to that busier period as the, uh, fall, and, as the fall goes on and the winter starts.
1: Well, yeah, because if we've got problems now and suddenly we have a, an outpouring of people who get the flu, that, I mean, it'll be a mess.
3: It is, uh, it, it, you know, it, it is a bit concerning to see it busy um, right now, although we don't really know the reason for that. So uh, it's, it's hard to know, you know, whether that will end before flu peaks um, start or whether this will continue. But, yes, it could really tax resources if we were still having this surge at the same time that a flu peak happened.
1: One more thing, because there was one other part of your story that we haven't even touched on, and maybe you can tie it all together and explain why. Uh, you, you very clearly have explained why we have problems with beds in the hospitals. Why, what's the connection? Why are we short of ambulances then if we've got a bed shortage?
3: Well, what happens is that um, when you don't have enough beds uh, in the hospital, you have patients that are waiting in the emergency department to be admitted. And Dr. Chris Manage talked about how, at times, uh, Hamilton General Hospital has had 90 percent of its emergency room filled with patients who are um, essentially waiting for a bed to open up in the hospital. What that means is that when paramedics arrive, with, uh, when paramedics arrive and need to put their patients somewhere, uh, you know they have to stay until the emergency department is able to properly admit their patient to the emergency department um, when there's uh, backlogs that means the paramedics get stuck waiting at the hospital and so you know when they're waiting at the hospital they can't be on the road uh, to respond to another call So what happens is the ambulances line up uh, at at the hospital emergency rooms and uh, the head of uh, emergency services uh, for hamilton mike sanderson uh... michael sanderson sorry did say that uh, you know the main uh, problem ambulances are having right now are with offloading patients at the emergency room so what ends up happening is then you end up in code zero and what code zero means is that there are uh there is only one or less one or fewer ambulances to respond to emergencies so you could have no ambulances to respond to emergencies and we were in that situation um, at least once every other day in october
1: Wait, once every other day in October?
3: Yes, we had 18 code 0 uh, situations uh, in October. So that meant there are 18 times in October when there was one or f- one or less ambulances to respond to calls.
1: And and what kind of block of time, when you say it happened once, is that for a whole day, or is that by an hour, or do we know what the block of time is? I
3: don't know the block of time. Uh, The city uh, didn't provide me with that, but it can be just for a few minutes, or sometimes it can be for longer periods of time, sometimes it can be for hours.
1: Wow. And is that for the whole city? There was one ambulance for the city?
3: That's for the whole city. Um, now they do have uh, agreements in place to where they can possibly call on neighboring uh, neighboring municipalities to help out if we did have an emergency call and they didn't have an ambulance to respond uh, to that call, but of course, they would rather not be in that position. So, you know, um, that's why, you know, we'd like to see uh, why the hospitals are working so hard to try and deal with this surge because, you know, they don't want to have uh, paramedics uh, waiting in their emergency departments instead of um, on the road ready to respond to calls.
1: Yeah, not, not, I'll be honest, Joanna, great story, uh, not the most comforting story, um, <laughs> but but well, well constructed and uh, lots of information. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate the time.
3: Thanks very much.
1: That is Joanna Frikadich from The Spectator. Again, the story is on, it's on the main page of the Specs website. Hamilton's hospitals overwhelmed with patients. And I'll tell you, if you are someone who gets yourself into a position, and when I say get yourself in, I mean, I know it's not on purpose, but if you find yourself sick or if you find yourself, um, you know, needing an ambulance, needing a bed, hope that you don't end up in one of those code zero moments. I mean, think about that one and, and put the blame wherever you want the blame to be. Is it on hospital administration for not doing a good enough job, choosing where to put the money? Is it on the government for not giving the hospitals enough money? Is it on this? Is it on that? Everyone's going to have an opinion, but imagine there is one ambulance in the city of Hamilton or there's no beds available. I mean, it's it it is it is a boy, I mean it's hard to wrap your head around that because we've always had this belief, this thought, that our system is the gold standard. And compared to a lot of other country countries, it is, but that is concerning. That in this city, that is concerning that you could have that much of a backlog, that few beds, that few ambulances. I don't want to be in the position where I have a car crash and there's nobody to actually pick me up and take me to the hospital. And I know they would not leave you just lying on the side of the road, but boy, oh boy. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Let's um, let's stick with the World Series for a couple of minutes. Chris Zelkovich from Yahoo Sports Media Writer, uh, one of our favorite guests here on the show, joins us tonight. Chris, how are you tonight?
2: Very good, Scott. Yourself?
1: I'm good. Did you get any sleep last night?
2: Well, I, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I didn't make it. I, <laughs> and that 10th that, that, uh, inning uh, Rain Daily pretty much finished me off. Cause, uh, however, uh, I watched the highlights of the last inning. So, well, so i will uh, say I watched it.
1: There were, according to the numbers that are out today, um, forty roughly 40 million people, and that's just in the States, 40 million people who were watching that game last night. And I'm wondering... How many of those, how many of those 40 million do, th- do you think were tuned in because it was the Cleveland Indians?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I think the, the, the beauty of this series, and, and first off, a seven-game series, no matter who's playing, is going to draw big ratings. Uh, but uh, when you bring in, I mean, the, the, the story that Hollywood, I, no one in Hollywood would think to write this story. Two teams that had gone combined, what, 176 years without winning a World Series? And one of them had to win last night. So, yeah, I mean, the Cubs, the Cubs are the story. But, you know, Cleveland,
1: Cleveland's a pretty good story, too. Why are the I mean, uh, most people that you talk to, it was the Cubs. And, again, I mean, I understand that their drought is an awful lot longer and there's really nothing else like it in sports. But there's got to be more to it than just the drought that has people so fascinated by the Cubs, isn't there? Or, or, is, that, or is that exclusively it? Is it just, man, it's been so long, i got to watch the Cubs?
2: Well, I mean, I think, you know, people love spectacles. And, and uh, you know, when you have a spectacle of a, of a franchise that hasn't won a World Series in more than a century, uh, I mean, I, I think that's that's enough on its own. Uh, and the fact that Chicago, again, if it had been the, the Cleveland Indians or the, the Kansas City Royals, yeah, you wouldn't have quite the uh, the reach. But, you know, Chicago's uh, one of those teams that's benefited from the Superstation, WGN, like the Atlanta Braves were with um, – WTBS, where there there are Cubs fans. They're kind of like the Saskatchewan Roughriders of uh, of baseball. They're yep, fans yep. right across the country, if not the continent, and possibly around the world. So uh, you know they got this huge fan base to start with, and then you throw in, I mean, truly a, an implausible story. A team a team that hadn't won a World Series in a hundred and eight years. Uh, it's just uh, it's too good to turn down. And then add in a game that was about as wacky and wild as they get and you're going to get uh, you're going to get huge numbers.
1: How much I, this sounds like a strange thing to to tie the stadium into this, but we were just mentioning Wrigley Field. How much does the stadium help the whole Cubs lore? Because, you know, people don't I don't think anyone's ever said, "You know, I love the Blue Jays because Rogers Centre is my favorite <laughs> stadium." But it seems to me that Wrigley Field actually does that with the Cubs. Wrigley Field somehow is a draw to make people into Cubs fans.
2: Well, sure. And I mean, just, uh, you know, ask anybody, even if they're not a baseball fan, to name two baseball stadiums and you will get Wrigley Field and, and Fenway Park and then maybe Yankee Stadium. But that's not the same Yankee Stadium. So, it, you know, it, it doesn't have the cachet that it used to have. It, it's, you know, it's iconic. I mean, it's, uh, you know, this, this this little stadium that's, uh, you know, absolutely ancient. And again, by getting those, uh, you know, that wide reach on television, that everybody knows it.
1: And, and, you know, someone, I was uh, at work today, somebody was commenting on the fact that for the longest time, because the Cubs were the only team that played in the afternoons, there was a generation of people with the cable. You mix that cable, the w, uh, WGN, with the fact that they were the only game on f- at certain time of day, uh, that helped. That built a generation of people who yeah. kind of became, even if it was their second team, you were a Jays fan first, but if the Jays are out, okay, I'm a Cubs fan.
2: Yeah, no, and I, that's why I kind of compared them to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, who are like every Canadian football fan's second favorite team, unless they're from Saskatchewan. Yeah. So you know, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it's just a great story all the way around.
1: The whole series, and it, this was a tremendous series to begin with. But it seems when you look at those numbers, Chris, of forty million viewers for last night, it, every. Every year, it seems, we have people saying, oh, baseball is dying. No one's going to watch baseball. This is the, the generation where we want you know Twitter and all these things that are short bursts. Every year, and especially this, seems to put the lie to that. It, 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 attendance is up in baseball. Ratings are up in baseball. It, it seems as though no sense talking about baseball's imminent death because it's going the other way.
2: Well, yeah, and despite baseball's ex- best efforts to uh, to kill to kill <laughs> interest, I mean, you know, how many four-hour games did we have, and you know, these interminable delays as they reviewed plays that 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 were you know obvious, obviously correct, and yet for some reason we had to sit through four and five replays before they they made the decision that yes, indeed, it, it, the right call was made. I don't know. You know, it it could be, I'd be cynical, an aging population. Well, (laughs) Uh, baseball tends to have an older, uh, more attractive to older, older crowd. So, you know, that that could be part of it. Um, However, that's the TV audience. Uh, Go to most of these stadiums and the Rogers Center is a perfect example. And you're seeing a lot more young people in the stands. And, uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure that seems to fly in the face of everything we we think about, uh, about baseball and, uh, you know, that it's a a retiree sport. And yet, more and more, I mean, just last night, you know, as they panned the crowd 785 times, as they (laughs) tend to do. uh, To get
1: every single celebrity they could possibly find, no matter how low on this pecking order he is.
2: I think they also wanted to get every person who lived in Cleveland (laughs) on there, too. But... You know, again, there's you know there are a lot more young faces than than uh, than you'd think, and there's uh, I have no idea. Maybe maybe it's uh, you know the MLB uh, video game that's done this. Who knows?
1: You do. You did mention though the four hour games, and one of the things that I found striking about this was it, it doesn't work in the regular season. If in a regular season, man, get the game over with. Let's get let's have a nice two hour game. Let's move this thing along. But in the playoffs, and I don't know whether it's just because you're seeing the best directors, the best play-by-play people, the best cameramen who are working this thing, but somehow, even if a game goes three and a half, four hours, I thought they were able to, it rarely became something that wasn't tense. It was a yeah. Somehow you can, in this particular circumstance, build the kind of tension that, you know what, just a close-up of a pitcher's face not doing anything
2: actually works. Well, what I find fascinating is uh, when Fox started doing baseball a few years back, uh, I guess probably probably talking more than a decade back, like they, they threw every bell, whistle, and horn that they could find at it. I remember cameras embedded in the baselines. And, you know, it was just this, this constant barrage of, of weird camera angles and crazy graphics and everything. The way they do it now is close to the way baseball was originally broadcast. I mean, for example, the Fox did not use that uh, – you know one of the my pet peeves that on screen graphic that shows where the balls were thrown you know to the, where the pitchers uh, the pitchers ended up which for example sportsnet shows entire during the entire game to the point where you find yourself doing nothing but watching every where every pitch landed on that little box and then of course drawing from that conclusion that the umpire is biased against the <laughs> team. <laughs> True. Uh, and I just found the game so much more enjoyable to watch because we were watching baseball instead of graphics. Anyway, that's, you know, no, my, t- uh, my take on those things. But, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, when you get to these big events, you know, they throw the technology at it. But I think, I think television has kind of learned a bit that maybe technology isn't necessarily the best thing. And just, just yeah, nice, crisp, clean images of, of what's going on out there works.
1: There was, I thought, and I, again, you didn't make it, but you probably saw the highlight. I thought the absolutely the most amazing moment in the entire series, and it had nothing to do with, well, a little bit, but the very last play, the ground ball, when they showed the close-up, and Chris Bryant, the third baseman for the Cubs, moved in, and as he, the entire play, he had this big, goofy, ridiculous grin on his face. <laughs> and I thought yeah. to myself, you know, that like, that is... The kind of stuff. Now, thank goodness for high definition, because you probably wouldn't have noticed that before and all the rest, but no. it's those things, if you capture them, they, it, it just makes the whole thing so much more interesting.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. It, it really tells, does. They did a great job of telling the stories.
1: Is there any charm at all left in dressing room celebrations? Honest, I like I've I've honestly yeah, reached the I, point now where I go. I used to, when I was a kid and I would watch the Stanley because the Stanley Cup Finals were the ones where I remember it. And they would take the Stanley Cup in and the players would squirt the champagne all over the place. And I remember desperately wanting to watch because my favorite players might be interviewed. Right now, I can't think of anything I'm less interested in than seeing a bunch of guys in ski goggles spraying yeah. each other with champagne and beer and saying nothing.
2: Yeah. Well, when they brought the goggles in, I think they uh, they lost a generation there. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's just uh, you know that, that's just w- way beyond what it should be. Yeah. I you know again I I, I it's just uh, yeah it's it's a complete waste of time. I mean give me give me ten seconds of them running around on the field and then after that you don't want to hear you want to, do not want to hear another word.
1: Well, they don't say anything. That's the whole problem. No. And, and and half the time I think part of it is because you get into the dressing room after they've already got into the champagne and the beer. So they're half in the bag already anyway. Uh, Theo Epstein, the general manager of the Cubs yesterday, was well tanked and dropped an F-bomb live on the air. So,
0: lovely.
1: Um, well, and the other thing, okay, one other thing. Before we get off the baseball, because I do have just a few minutes and I want to get to something else as well. Some people are going to take offense to this, but why is, in my opinion, why is Buck Martinez so much better and so much more tolerable on American TV than on Canadian TV? <laughs>
2: Well, part of the reason is that he's in his proper role on American television, which is as, a, as an analyst and not as a, as a play-by-play guy. Um, so so he's, he's just more in his element. But I think the other thing is is that uh, he's employed by ESPN or Major League Baseball International or TBS, and he's calling a game between two teams that he, he's not really part of. Whereas with with uh, Rogers for Sportsnet, he is he's a Blue Jays announcer, and you get an awful lot. I find just far too many uh, excuses for why the Blue Jays are losing, and far far too many errors glossed over. And uh, you know, and that's I think that's the difference. He's a he's a hometown announcer for uh, for the Blue Jays, and he's just an announcer when he does American television.
1: And if I hear one more time, get up, ball! I'm, I swear oh. I'm going to throw something through the television <laughs> set. Uh, but just personal pet, pet peeve of mine. I mean, listen, I, I'm on the radio. We all have our things we do that drive people nuts. That that is mine right there. The get yeah. up ball. It's uh, anyway. well,
2: you know, and I mean, I, I, I'm glad they don't show too many pictures of, uh, of particularly Buck and Pat Sabler uh, in the booth because I'm sure there's going to be pom-poms there. <laughs>
1: You're probably not wrong. I'm actually a little surprised. Speaking of Sportsnet and Rogers, I'm a little surprised that unless something has changed and unless I've missed it, they're not actually going to show any of the parade live tomorrow. Because I thought, honestly, I mean, even though the series was great, I thought that would actually get decent ratings to see that parade. I, I really thought someone was going to pick up a feed of that. And how many? Again, we've talked about this before, Chris. They've got 207 live stream stations to do this. Why could one of them not be the Cubs parade?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have any information on that. But that's—I uh, agree with you. That's a surprise. You know, if it, it was—if it was a a channel, uh, you know, CBC or something that had its one its one feed, I, I could understand that. But you're right. Uh, in the middle of the afternoon, when nothing else is on, and you've got that many channels, and you could probably get it for free. Uh, yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Where do you think now baseball the the ratings in Canada? They we talked about the forty million in the states. I think it was Mm. seven and some seven million something that were watching in Canada last night. And baseball certainly all season has been getting enormous numbers. The Jays and then the playoffs. Where do you think the folks who have been watching baseball? Where do they migrate to now? I mean, do they go to another sport? Or do they just go to something else? And, and if they go to another sport, what sport, especially in Canada, what sport benefits now from this? Is it all to hockey?
2: Well, uh, I would say some of it will be to hockey. And uh, again, speaking cynically, but probably realistically, a lot of it's going to go to curling. Well, no. Uh, you- I mean, it's amazing how many baseball fans are also avid curling fans.
1: And again, so- the age thing.
2: And the age thing, yeah. So you will you will see, and of course, the big curling events haven't started yet, so it's not like baseball's been sucking the ratings uh, away from curling. But I think that's where that's where a lot of baseball fans end up going. Uh, and then, of course, you got the the big football stuff coming up with the playoffs and the CFL and NFL coming not that far off. So that's you know, they'll all benefit from from that. But uh, I think I think yeah, you'll you'll see you'll see a lot of these people, uh, you know, switch over to whatever channel's got curling on it.
1: Uh, just have a couple minutes left, but um, you have now had a few weeks to examine the new, old, renewed again uh, NHL stuff on CBC and on Sportsnet and everywhere else. Um, what are your thoughts? How are they doing?
2: You know, it is it is kind of like a you know a back to the future thing. I mean, you know, they they, they change things up, and now they're going back to the way they used to do them. And that's really about all I can say is that they've gone back to the way they used to do it. It's it's like it's. 2011 again um there's really i mean i think they made a, a few improvements in in personnel and i don't necessarily mean that they've they've improved the, the people that are on there or anything it's just that there are fewer faces so when you tune in on saturday night you know who you're going to see and when you tune in on wednesday night you know who you're going to see and i think that was one one mistake they made in the past that it really kind of made the whole thing a bit of a mishmash. You know, it was just this, this constant rotating cast of about 25 tele, uh, sports commentators.
1: It was like and you I'm, were talking about with the Cleveland. It was just them showing the crowd at Cleveland, and that was like yeah. the NHL panel on Hockey Night in Canada.
2: Yeah, and you found yourself, you know, if you weren't a, an avid watcher, like, who's this guy? Who's that guy? where did he come from? <laughs> So yeah, I think that's that's to me is the biggest improvement is that they've they've sort of uh, shortened the cast of characters.
1: I do wonder though, as I let you go, I do wonder because last year one of the comments that was you know a lot of people were saying was that you know the George Strombolopoulos and the other ones who were on the panel were really paying the price for the Canadian teams sucking the tailpipe and the fact that toronto is better montreal is better edmonton is way better vancouver is playing better calgary is doing better i mean ottawa i think they still have a team in the league i'm not really sure but um all the canadian teams pretty much are either better or showing signs of hope i just wonder if it really is evidence that yeah those people who were let go really paid the price for the canadian team's misfortune
2: yeah I, mean, I think the you know, I mean the ratings were the ratings were down, and I guess somebody had to pay the price and uh, you know they but I think they also feared that they were gonna lose their their hardcore fan, which is really well, I mean when you start losing your hardcore fans they, you know there can be nothing but trouble ahead after that. so I think that probably was really what what prompted uh, that move.
1: Chris Zelkovich, Yahoo Sports. You can find his stuff online. Uh, always great stuff. If you're interested in TV, in ratings, in stuff that is on on TV, uh, Chris's stuff is always excellent. Chris, thanks for doing this again, as always.
2: Okay. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thank
1: that, you. Uh, Chris Zelkovich, from, again, from Yahoo Sports, going uh, Z-E-L-K-O-V-I-C-H. You can find his stuff. There's not too many people named Zelkovich writing about TV sports. So you can always figure out which one was Chris Zelkovich's, just, you know, process of elimination Uh,
0: I got I got a couple quick comments Uh, one you talked about Buck Martinez being more tolerable as a color commentator Uh, it would have been easier to stomach if his play-by-play guy wasn't so atrocious Uh, I had forgotten that Fox was a choice so I was watching up until Rajay Davis hit that tying home run and that call was so bad that I was like, I'm going to see if I can find somewhere else to watch this. Because you mean I the, can't. Screaming yeah, I oh, the screaming call? See, I like the screaming call. No, I could like, It was just... in. It's the it was world, over the top. It's the World Series. I know. and then But then, I think it was when he was rounding the bases that it killed me, because he did a sort of a, at least I heard it this way, a take off of Tom Cheek's famous, touch em all, Joe, oh. you'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. And I was like, no, 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 you cannot do that. Uh, the other quick thing, uh, Chris talked about the hardcore fans from Hockey Night in Canada. That is exactly why they fired the people who they fired. They fired PJ Stock and Glenn Healy, the two biggest ones, who to the hardcore fan are everything that was wrong with Hockey Night in Canada. And so that those guys lost their job because they were afraid of of losing the fan that cared deeply about every broadcast.
1: Uh, yeah, you know what, I, I don't disagree with that, although I do truly believe that if last year was this year, If the Canadian teams were last year doing what they're doing this year and showing the improvement they are and showing the hope that they are. and I mean, again, the Leafs are not doing particularly well, but fans are buying into what is being sold. I'm not sure that Rodgers and Hockey Night can't all... I'm not sure they make those changes. They might. They might still. But ratings, I don't think... As much as I wasn't necessarily a fan... I like Ron McLean. I wasn't a huge fan of George Strombolopoulos in that venue. I don't think that... People were not watching because George Strombolopoulos was the host. They were not watching because the Canadian team stunk and weren't making the playoffs. But somebody had to, as, as Chris said, somebody had to pay the price.
0: The Scott Radley Show, weekdays from 7 to 9
2: on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.